0: Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We really appreciate as a church those who disciple us, and so we recognize that Jorge and those who are on the stage up here are discipling us by leading us in music, and so we sing to one another, and ankles and can disciple us through prayer and scripture reading. I'm thankful for Danny and Carl in the back right now who are a part of that, supporting that on the stage here in the AV. And I want you to think about it in that way, because what we're doing here is discipleship. We're following Christ and everyone has a part. And there's a sense where you are discipling one another as you talk to one another, love one another and sing toward one another. First Corinthians chapter 13 is where we're at this morning. Imagine the scene of the upper room on the night before Jesus atoned for our sins. In that room, Jesus gathered with his disciples for what would be the last time that he would teach his disciples. He was preparing them for what was to come after his death and resurrection and ascension. And what was to come was God was turning over to these men, empowered by the Spirit, his work on earth. Through these men, they were to start the church and spread it around the world. And so what did Jesus teach at that last time to teach his disciples in what we call the upper room discourse? Well, let me give you a pop quiz this morning. What was the first thing Jesus taught when he began that upper room discourse? So Judas left, and what was the very first thing Jesus taught? Think about that. Also, what was the last thing Jesus instructed before they left that room? To add to that, what did Jesus continue to teach when they left that room? And then at the very conclusion of that discourse, when he prayed to his father, what was the last thing Jesus prayed about? And here's a clue. The answer is the same for all of them. And here's another clue. It's a topic that we're speaking about today, found in 1 Corinthians 13. And what do you think that topic was? It was love. Yeah, because think about it this way. Jesus, Judas left the room and Jesus said this to his disciples, John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then he Spoke some more. And then right before they were going to leave that room, the Bible says that Jesus said this in John 14, 31. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Like I'm doing what I'm doing, going to the cross because I love the Father. So rise, let us go from here. And then as he moved along and he taught them, he continued to teach them, John 15, 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. And then Jesus had his prayer, his high priestly prayer, and he prayed. And this is the very last thing Jesus said in that prayer, John 17, 26. He prayed to his father that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You could sum up the upper room discourse and what happened after that as a topic on love. How important was the topic of Christian love to Jesus? And I would argue it was the most important topic. That's why it was the very last thing that Jesus taught his disciples. I mean, think about this. You have 11 men who are supposed to go out empowered by the Holy Spirit to start the church. So what's the last thing Jesus taught? I mean, is it on church growth? You know, survey and find out what people want. And this is how you get people in the church. Or was it on here's homiletics, here's how to preach. I mean, what was it that he said? He said what? What was the last thing he said? He's like, guys, this is what I really want you to know. This is what's really essential for the church. It's love. Love God, love one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 here, we've been learning that love is the most important priority for the church. Remember in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, he says it's the most excellent thing. And then verse Or chapter 13 gives a beautiful, poetic description of Christian love. And so we're in verses 4 through 7. Technically, I guess you could say 8a, because that's the last verb you find there. And there are 15 verbs that help us know what God's love is like and how he empowers us by the Holy Spirit to love one another. And we've attempted to sum up these verses with this definition of love and that is love is an enduring desire for another's good that denies self and always seeks to benefit the other person. Love is an enduring desire for another's good that denies self and always seeks to benefit the other person. That's how I sum up verses 4 5 6 7 in the first part of verse 8. And those first two verbs in verse four are love is patient and kind. And that represents the first part of that definition that love is an enduring desire for another's good. And so we, we review this because it helps us launch into the rest of these verbs because patience here, I just lost something here. Let's see if I can get it back. If not, that's okay but patience here is means that our relationships may be difficult there will be times push play there we go there will be times when we must endure we must have a long suffering And also it's mingled with kindness. Kindness means you do what's most helpful for that person. So both of these verbs inform us that sometimes relationships can be difficult because sometimes we can be difficult. In fact, real Christian relationships will have hardship and pain caused by People. I think Satan's one of Satan's greatest lies that he tells to churches and to friends and to mar- and marriages is that Christian relationships should be easy. It should just be laughs and giggles and bunnies and whatever else you know But actually that's that's not true. In churches people wonder why aren't these perfect or why aren't these people perfect? I mean, aren't we all supposed to be Christians? Sometimes in marriage, people think it shouldn't be this difficult if we're both Christians. But here's the reality. Here's the Bible news for you. Genuine Christian relationships, love with patience and kindness because we aren't perfect. Because we are, Lord willing, by the Spirit's power, growing to be more like Jesus, but we're not there yet. So the test of your love isn't if you are bubbling with joy at the dinner party. The test of true Christian love is if you endure, that's patience, and if you do what's helpful, if you're doing what is good for another person, that's kindness, even when it's arduous and you don't feel like it. So true Christian love is imperfect people refusing to reject each other, but instead continuing continuing with an enduring desire for another's good that denies self and always seeks to benefit another person. And so last week we looked at those nine, we started looking at those nine verbs that follow patience and kindness, and we looked at the first five, and those were five verbs that told us to deny ourselves, that love denies self. And we didn't do the last three, so we're gonna do the last three here. And that's verses five and six. And that is love is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice in the truth. And then the fourth verb, it's positive, is rejoice. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but the fourth verb says rejoices with the truth. So let's read verses four through verse eight love never ends. Would you stand with me? I'm in the ESV, and so if you have an ESV or yours is pretty close, would you read out loud with me? And if you don't, you can try your best. It probably is not going to follow exactly because there's different translations. But I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through verse 8, the first sentence. If you want to read along with me. Ready? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this scripture text will be used to help us to grow, to love more like Jesus loves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The next three self-denials, the next three ways that love denies self, starts in verse number five with love is not irritable. The King James translates this as love is not easily provoked. The NIV translates this as love is not easily angered. The Greek word is a compound of two words. It's with sharpness. So it's the idea when a relationship is sharp towards you, you don't allow it to get to you. You don't allow the sharpness of another person to cause you to cut off the relationship. This word is used in Acts chapter 15. Verse 39, it's used in the noun form there when Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement. And the scripture says this, then there arose a sharp disagreement. You could say a provocation. That's that word right there. So that they separated from each other. And so this word demonstrates that people can be sharp. Relationships can sometimes hurt but we must be careful not to respond by immediately cutting off the relationship. And there are times when we graciously cut off a relationship. Frankly, that's called church discipline, right? And we're doing it because we want that person to return to Christ. Sometimes that happens in families uh, there has been situations in our lives, and I know of other people's lives, where they have family that are addicted to some type of drug or maybe alcohol or whatever. And for the, for the love of that person, they cut off the, the funds or whatever relationship needs to happen so that person can experience the prodigal's sins uh, experience of coming to the end of themselves. And so that's, that can be a form of love. So that's not talking about this. It's not saying that that there's never a time when that might happen. What it's saying is that we're not quick to to move to cut off the relationship. We're slow to be irritated to anger. Sometimes people come to a text like this, and I know I can be tempted to do this, and I'm I'm, I'm I'm sure that you can be tempted as well. And we can use this to think about other people, to think about how other people aren't truly loving us or how they, you know, are quick to anger or they're irritable. And so let me just encourage all of us not to do that right now. Can we just think about ourselves? Can we just consider our own irritability, our own quick to anger, calibrate our conscience in regard to God's word? So let me ask this question. Sometimes people come to this and they say, well, this is a text that tells us we should not be angry, right? It's a sin to be angry. Is that true? Is that what this text is teaching? Is this text teaching that it's a sin for a Christian to be angry? Well, the answer to that is no. That's not what this is teaching. It is wrong to have sinful anger. It's good to have righteous anger. And what's the difference? Well, sin for, sinful anger is out of control. Sinful anger is under the control of my own flesh. Sinful anger is usually about me, my rights, my desires, you offending what I want. Sinful anger is self-focused. It's demonic. It's hurtful. Sinful anger is wrong. And the opposite of sinful anger is righteous. Anger, And you realize that God actually commands us to be angry. Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry and do not sin. So that's a righteous anger. That's a God-like anger. Righteous anger is not about me. It's not about my rights. But it's a stirring up in my soul for the glory of God. Righteous anger is focused on God, and it's a stirring up in my soul because I love God and I love people. You could say it like this. God's righteous anger comes from God's love. Because God loves, God has righteous anger. Think about it this way. God has created us, and he did that in love. And he created us so that we would love, so that we would love him, and so that we would love one another. But when a person, when we reject love, when we reject God's love, when we don't love other people, that's sin. And that sin provokes God to anger. In fact, to demonstrate this to you, would you go to Exodus chapter 32? This is the second book in the Old Testament, so Genesis, and the next book is Exodus, Exodus chapter 32. I don't want to illustrate this to you because sometimes people get confused by this. And I think sometimes we can be confused by this. And remembering, remember, what we're doing right now is we are calibrating our conscience to agree with God's word. This is not my opinion. This is not the opinion of the church, this is what God's word teaches, and that's what we want to make sure that we're, we are going back to. The Hebrew word for anger is off, it's the word for nostrils. It's the idea of, it's the picture that your nostrils start to flare when something bothers you. And in Exodus 32, we see God is angry, we see Moses is angry, and their anger is righteous. And what were they angry about? Well, they were angry over. Sin. Let me read this verse for you. Psalm 711 says, God is righteous and is angry every day. Think about that. God is righteous and angry every day. And what's he angry about? He's angry about sin. And again, remember, God's love compels him to hate our sin. And what was the sin here in Exodus 32? Well, it was rejection of God's love. And it was being unloving to other people. Remember, Moses is on top of the mountain. He's receiving the Ten Commandments. And buried in the middle of the Ten Commandments is God's love. He says, don't worship other idols because I'm the God who loves you. And I've shown you steadfast love. So therefore, don't worship idols. Don't make for yourself a graven image. At the bottom of that mountain, there are the people of Israel. And they are making a graven image. In fact, look at verse number four, Exodus 32, four, and he, that's Aaron, he's the leader there, received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So Israel here is sinning against God by desiring to worship an old, a golden idol, a golden calf. And if you were to go back to Exodus 20, you could see the list of the 10 commandments that Moses already proclaimed to them, already told them. And again, in that 10 commandments was the prohibition to worship any other gods. And the reason for that is because God is a God of love and he's shown steadfast love. So your love, your worship should only be for God. So what you see here with these people as they're worshiping this idol is they're not loving God. They're actually rejecting God's love. And then you have Aaron down there. And Aaron is receiving people's gold. He makes the golden calf. And he's being unloving. He's inviting these people into the judgment of God. He's inviting them into sin. And if you look in verse number 6, you can see that people are sinning against each other. There's an allusion here to the fact that they're committing immorality with each other. So here what you see at the bottom of this mountain you see you see people who don't love God and people who are not loving each other they're sinning against each other. And so what's God's response? Look at Exodus 32:10. Exodus 32:10. God spoke to Moses and said, "Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath, that's my anger may Burn hot against them and I may consume them. Like this is over, this is done, boom, everyone down there, instant separation from God for eternity. Verse 19, you see, Moses is angry. He comes down from the mountain. Verse 19, as soon as he came near the camp, this is Moses, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. So here you have God and Moses who are angry. Was it a sin for them to be angry? And the answer is no. Why is that? Because the people were violating the love of God. It was love for God and love for For the people that caused Moses to be angry. And you say, Pastor Ben, how do you know that? Well, because Moses went back up to that mountain and he prayed for them. He actually prayed the most remarkable prayer that I think, one of the most remarkable prayers that you can find in the scripture look down with me at verse 30. Here's what Moses says to the people. This is his desire. This is how you know he loves them. Verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps your sin will be covered. In other words, my desire for you guys, I want you guys to be forgiven. I want your sin to be covered. And so verse 31 So Moses returned to the Lord and he said, alas, I mean, imagine Moses before the Lord. He's crying out, petitioning the Lord. Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Do you realize what Moses was asking God here? Moses was saying, Lord, I know they deserve to be punished. And what did they deserve to be punished with? Well, to be blotted out of God's book. What is that talking about? That means you go directly to hell and you don't get to enjoy God's love for eternity. So that's what God's saying. You sin and that's what you deserve. And what Moses is saying here, he's saying, listen, God, if, if you would forgive them, I'm praying for that. But I know that's, that's your righteousness. And you're just, you're holy. I, I mean, I'm right before you right now, and I, I understand the holiness of God. And so, Lord, will you do this? Can I be blotted out in their place? Can you cut me off from your love and a relationship with you? Can you blot me out of your book? Do you realize that Moses here is saying, God, I I would want hell for Israel. I want to take their place. And what was God's answer to Moses? What was God's answer to Moses? Sorry, can't happen sin has consequences. That was his answer. Well, why is that? Why can't Moses take away their sin? Because no person can. Friend, do you realize, if you're in here without Jesus, do you realize this, that no person in this world can remove your sin? No person can forgive you. You can't even forgive yourself. You can't take a wafer from a priest and have your sin forgiven. You can't have something waved over you or someone pray over you. I can pray over you all day long, and it's not going to take away one sin in your life. You can try to be as good as you possibly can your whole life, but it won't remove your sin. What's interesting here is Moses is one of the most revered people in Israel, and even Moses can't remove their sin. So it's hopeless, except... God sent one who could, and that's Jesus Christ. There's only one person who can remove your sin, and that's Jesus. And the hope here for Moses and for Israel was to look forward to Christ. Our hope is to look back to Christ to see what he did for us. And on that cross, he paid for it in full. He's the only one who could, and he did. And we believe that is true. And that's why the Bible says in Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You can only be forgiven. You can only be saved if you believe in Jesus Christ as your savior. You turn from faith in yourself and faith in your own religion and faith in your own good deeds. And you say, Jesus is the only one good enough. Jesus is the only one that could pay for sin. He did so on the cross. I give you my life, Jesus Christ. And God promises he saves you and he gives you the gift of eternal life. But think about Moses on that mountain. God loved his people. Moses loved his people. It moved Moses to pray. But yet there was anger as well. How was that righteous anger? How, how was God righteous in his anger? Well, God was slow to anger. I mean, he said they should be consumed, but did he consume him? And there were some consequences for their sins. But what we're going to see in Exodus chapter 34 is that actually God demonstrated love to them. In fact, would you go to Exodus 34 and verse 6? And I just want to show this before we go back to Exodus or go back to 1 Corinthians 13. But notice the love of God in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And what God was telling Moses is that I will forgive them because of myself, because of what I do. Not Moses, this is God speaking, and he will forgive them because he loves them. Moses had a right to be angry. it was motivated by love for God. And really, truthfully, it was motivated by love for them. And so go back to 1 Corinthians 13. Because what we see in 1 Corinthians 13 is this idea that love is not easily provoked, not easily irritated. And in Exodus, God loved his people. God offered love to them and they were to receive it. But because they rejected God's love and because they didn't love other people they sinned against God, God's anger was stirred up against them. But notice God was slow to anger and he desired to forgive and reconcile. So I think that's the heart of what this is saying right here. Love is not easily provoked is the idea that love does not desire the destruction of the other person. Love pursues them. Love wants them to be reconciled. Love is not easily irritated means that love does not desire the relationship to be cut off. Love doesn't slam the door and walk away. Love doesn't blow up and give a person a piece of your mind. For parents, love does not mean that, or should say love, does mean, love does mean that you give your children consequences for their sin, but you do so calmly you do so with love for God and love for that child. And you're not motivated by your frustration. You're not motivated, motivated because you're annoyed with that child. You're motivated because you want that child to love God and to love those in that home. For the church, not easily provoked does not mean we ignore sin. It doesn't mean we ignore problems. In fact, that was really what was going on with this church in Corinth Remember chapter five, there was someone in the church and he was acting like a regular member, but yet he was living in immorality, open immorality. And the church was like, well, you know, we're not going to do anything about it. Love is going to cover that sin. No, that's not what this is teaching here. But it's teaching that we should be careful. We should be slow to consider how to help restore that person. There might come a time where that person needs to be removed. And that's what happened in 1 Corinthians, between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. They removed him from the fellowship of the church. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to say, okay, guys, it's time to bring him back. <laughs> he confessed his sin. He repented of his sin. Come on, don't, don't resist him anymore. Like, receive him back into the fellowship. And so here we see love is, is slow to anger. And then second, the next verb we see is love denies self by not keeping an account of wrongs. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, in the last word of verse 5, that love is not resentful. This word is an accounting word that means to not keep a record. That's why the NIV translates this as love keeps no records of wrongs. That's a good translation right there. Love is not resentful means that love does not keep an account of how people have wronged you or the faults and mistakes that they have made. Some of you are very meticulous about your financial records. Like you keep all your receipts. You know, every penny that you spend is recorded somewhere in a spreadsheet or whatever. We could go back to 2010 and I could ask you, like, what did you spend at McDonald's in 2010? And you could pull it right up, right? some people do that in their mind in regard to other people's sin. They can just pull it right back up. They keep an account of it. They never delete it. And they use it against other people. Families do this sometimes. Sometimes we keep score of our righteous deeds and other people in the family and their failures. And so it's You know, someone's turn to walk the dog. Who's going to walk the dog today? And you say, I've walked the dog three times this week, and you have only done it once. And the other person responds back to you, and they say, well, I fed the dog 19 times in the last 30 days. And so it's like I'm going to stack my righteous deeds up toward yours failings, like you didn't do as much as I did. And you use that against that person, And by your calculation, the other person falls short of being as righteous as you, which reveals what? Reveals a heart of pride, right? I mean, if you really view yourself that way, if we view ourselves that way, that's that's proud. And even worse than that, accounting for faults and then using them against people is putting yourself in the place of God. Do you realize when you when you say when you look at all the faults of other people and you stack them up and say well I'm not like this and this person's like this that actually you are playing God God's the one, only one who has the right to say here's the judgment and here's the condemnation So what should you do with a dog Walk the dog and don't keep account Don't measure yourself up against other people. Love doesn't keep an account of rights and wrongs. Love has an accurate perspective on self. An accurate perspective on self. What's an accurate perspective of yourself? I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything from God or from other people. In fact, what I do deserve from God is judgment, but he's given me grace instead. Therefore, I don't look at people and say, well, you better do this, 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 and this in order for you to receive grace from me. That's not how God treats us. Why do we treat people that way? So we, don't, we shouldn't account like that and say, therefore, I'm gonna pay this out to you. No, God freely gives us grace and so what must we? Sometimes this happens in churches as well. Some Christians enjoy keeping a history of the church Made up of the mistakes of people and the wrongs against them. Back in 1999, I remember I was in the hallway and there was this deacon, and he said this to me. It hurt my feelings, and ever since then, I just could never talk to that person again. Those are real conversations that I hear. I'm not—that's not a real one. I'm just—it's a made-up one. But those type of conversations—it's like you keep an account from from 1999. How many of you were alive in 1999? It's a long time ago. Some of you laugh cuz you're like I was. Okay. <laughs> I think this verb of not taking into account is probably best lived out in the application of forgiveness. Colossians 3:13 through 14. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. To forgive is to promise that you will not use that sin that has been confessed against another person. Forgiveness is a promise that you will not use that sin that has been confessed against another person. Think about how God has loved us and forgiven us. In fact, I was thinking about Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? I went to the tree to find Jesus. I mean, this guy, he was a scam artist. You know, He stole money from people. You know those people that call you on the phone and they're trying to rip you off of, of $10,000 or whatever, and they end up doing it to your grandma, and you get really mad? That was Zacchaeus on the other line, right? He was the one doing that. But then he heard the gospel. He saw Jesus. He heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he confessed his sin. He's a thief. I'm a thief. And he confessed that, and he trusted in the Lord. He received grace, and he was saved. Jesus promised that salvation has come to your house. In other words, you're forgiven, Zacchaeus. God changed his life. And how do we know God changed his life? Because he repaid people back four times what he stole them. So if he called on the phone and scammed them out of $1,000, he gave them back $4,000. What did forgiveness mean for Zacchaeus? Well, Zacchaeus confessed his sins, found salvation in Christ, saved by grace, and that meant that God would never hold Zacchaeus' sins against him. Think about that. Did he deserve that? Yes. Do we deserve that? Yes, we deserve to have our sins held against us. Zacchaeus deserved to have his sins held against him, but God promised forgiveness. That means never having that held against him. Well, let's say it's two years later and Zacchaeus is, you know, doing another financial deal and he, he goes, oh, I'll just go ahead and pocket this money. And oh, does God take back his promise? Does God say, you know, well, oh, you're not forgiven anymore? Absolutely not. You see, God is faithful to his promise. And if, and I believe Zacchaeus was a true believer because the Bible says so. Therefore, if that would have happened, then he would have confessed that again and, and looked to Christ for forgiveness. And he, would have done what was right after that. And so Christian, as we think about God's forgiveness, God has forgiven us. And that is a promise that he's made, that Christ's sin was paid for on the cross. And because we believe that, our sins are forgiven forever. That's amazing, isn't it? Like all the sins that you've ever committed against God, all the sins you're ever going to commit against God, he has released you from that and promised you grace and eternal life and forgiveness. That's That's amazing. And therefore, that's how we are to forgive other people. We are to make a promise in forgiveness that we will not use that person's sin against them. We will not punish them with their sin. And what is the process of giving and receiving forgiveness? Because it's not just that we grant forgiveness to people. I don't go around and I say, I forgive you, and I forgive you, I forgive you. I'm not hitting people on the head forgiving them, right? There's actually a process, and that is that a person confesses their sin and asks for forgiveness. So that means a person actually says what they did wrong. I lied. I stole I was unkind, so they confess their sin, and they say, will you forgive me? And therefore, you say, yes, I release you. I forgive you. And that's what the Bible teaches. If your brother sins, rebuke him. So if someone sins against you, what are you to do? You're to rebuke them. First, that doesn't mean like you're to yell at them. What it means is to tell them what, how they sinned against you. When, when you were talking to me the other day, this was unkind, or you, know, you stole this from me, and, and that was wrong, and when that person asks forgiveness, when they turn and repent, then you forgive them, you release them. Love doesn't ignore sin. That's not what love is not resentful means. But love pursues forgiveness when a person confesses. And I like to distinguish something real quick here, and that is there's a difference between forgiving someone and trusting that person. Right? I'm sure many people, if they were believers, forgave Zacchaeus, right, of what he did. But they probably didn't turn over their retirement fund to him afterwards. You know what I mean? (laughs) And it could be at some point maybe they did. Maybe two or three years later they saw how faithful Zacchaeus was and his integrity. And God really did change his life. And they're like, you're really good with money, Zacchaeus. Can you help me, right? But that trust was earned over time with those people. Forgiveness is given as a gift immediately. Like I forgive you. I release you. But there is going to be a period of time where you're going to have to earn back that trust as you show integrity. And so I think that's Not in the text here, but I'm showing you that just as a general principle from the scripture. And so here we see that love denies self by not being resentful, not keeping account. And then verse 6, the last self-denial. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Notice the two verbs, rejoice. These same verbs are found in Matthew chapter 2, verse 10, where you have the wise men, and they see the star. And the Bible says this. When they saw the star, they I mean, think about that journey all the way across the desert. And you're like, I know we saw a star. It's out here somewhere. It means there's going to be a king born. We t- brought all this gold with us. And they see the star. And what happened? It was a party, right? The Bible says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So the rejoice here isn't like, I'm so glad I got my coffee in the morning. This is like a six-year-old having their birthday party, and it's the best birthday party ever. Like, it's that kind of rejoicing. And so love rejoices. And notice it's interesting. It doesn't say love does not do wrong, nor does it say love does what is right. But love rejo- does not rejoice in doing what is wrong, but rather love rejoices Love loves, you can say it that way, love takes pleasure in the truth. So love does not take pleasure, it doesn't rejoice in sin. That means that love doesn't enjoy your own sin. Love doesn't enjoy the sin of someone else. Love does not enjoy what God hates. God hates sin because sin is a rejection of his love and sin is unloving to other people. And so therefore love is disgusted by sin because sin is like drinking out of the sewer, it's impure and it kills. We rejoice in sin when we laugh at crude jokes. We rejoice in sin when we're entertained by sexual movies. We rejoice in sin when we are not grieved when other people take our Lord's name in vain. We rejoice in sin when we enjoy the downfall of another person. And so we do not, we should not, love does not rejoice in sin, but rather, what's the opposite? What's the opposite of of not rejoicing in wrongdoing? What's the opposite of not rejoicing in unrighteousness? It would seem that the opposite would be what? Rejoicing in righteousness, wouldn't it? But is that what he says here? Is that the opposite of not rejoicing in unrighteousness? Is, is Is it rejoicing in righteousness? No, what is it? It's rejoicing in... Rejoicing with or in the what? Truth. And why is that? Think about that. Like ponder that for a moment. Why is it the opposite of rejoicing, not rejoicing in unrighteousness is rejoicing in the truth? Well, you might have some ideas, maybe in your home group this week, you can discuss that. Okay. But this is how I thought about it. If love rejoiced in righteousness, particularly our own righteousness, we would all be toast. See, we sin, and yes, Christ covers our sin with his own righteousness. So let's rejoice in Christ's righteousness. But think about it this way. If your love for me rejoiced in my righteousness, you wouldn't love me because I'm a bad person. I mean that. All of us are. We're all sinners, right? If a wife's love rejoiced in a husband's righteousness, then a wife could have an excuse why she can't love him. If a church member's love rejoiced in another perfects, perfect record. If it's like I rejoice in that perfect person because they've done everything right and not in that person because they haven't, then you would have a reason why you shouldn't love them. But love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. And that therefore changes everything in our relationship with other people. Because that means that love's desire is for your family and for your friends and for your church to walk in truth, which means you tell the truth and you want them to live in the truth. We live in an age when the truth is is really whatever you want it to be. You know, as long as you live your authentic life, be your authentic self, then love lets you do that. That's what people think. You know, if you really love people, you just want them to be their authentic self. That's wicked. That's immoral. See, the authentic self is deceived. Our hearts are wicked, the Bible says. They're deceived above all things. The authentic self is deceived. It's far from God. And the truth is this. The more authentic you are in your flesh, the farther you get from God. And the gospel of our world, what some people call postmodernism, is this. Do what makes you happy And that's a terrible idea because if you're a crack addict, if you do cocaine or whatever drug it is out there, don't do what makes you happy. It's going to ruin your life. Or if you're a man full of lust, your idea of happiness will lead you down the path of immorality. So truly loving someone means you don't allow them to continue in their sin. You tell them the truth. You rejoice with the truth there's no joy. There's no joy in a person destroying their life by living a lie. We should mourn. When we think about our culture and our world and those out there that are living in these lies, we should mourn, right? It should make us sad because sin destroys people's lives. Because one of the saddest things is you think about our culture. You think about a young girl that's in LA right now and she's pregnant and she's thinking about aborting that baby. The saddest part about that is that this woman is inviting into her life something that's gonna destroy her. It's sin, and it's obviously gonna destroy another life. This lady is empty of God's love. And it should make us very sad because she's not living according to the truth. Love doesn't ignore sin. Love doesn't pretend like it's no big deal. Love deals with sin God's way. And I think even for us as Christians, one of the ways that we see this idea lived out maybe in an improper way is when we apply 1 Peter 4, 8 improperly. I I hear this all the time, have for many years. I used to think about this verse in that way. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, keep loving each other earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You ever heard that verse? So love one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins, and a lot of times people go to that verse as an excuse to say, "Well, I don't want to talk to that person about their sin because I'm just going to cover it in love." Can I just tell you that is not what this verse is teaching? This is not a verse that says ignore that person's sin because that's a loving thing to do. That's actually very unloving for someone to do. If someone's walking towards a cliff, it's not loving to say, "Well, you know, I don't want to offend them, and well, I'll just I'll cover love with I'll cover their, their bad mistake with love." And they go off the cliff and die, right? That's not a loving thing to do. This verse is not saying that. Your sin, you cover, I should say, you cover sin in love through what? Through forgiveness. And so keep loving one one another earnestly means we pursue each other to reconcile through forgiveness. We do so because we're compelled by love since love covers a multitude of sins. So love covers sins through forgiveness and reconciliation. So that's why we rejoice in the truth. And so we are to deny ourselves by not rejoicing in wrongdoing, but rejoicing in truth. Love is an enduring desire for another's good that denies self and always seeks to benefit the other person. And so let's conclude this this morning thinking about this. How can we deny ourselves so that we can love one another? Love denies self by not being easily irritable. Love denies self by not being resentful, by not keeping an account of wrongs. Love denies self by not rejoicing in, in wrongdoing, but rejoicing in the truth. And can I remind you this morning that Jesus came to this world because we don't love. Because we haven't loved God like we should. We don't love people like we should. And Jesus actually died on that cross for those sins. And he went to that cross because he loved us. And on that cross, he removed our punishment. And then he died and he rose again to empower us not to live that way any longer. And so therefore, Those who are in Christ, we are motivated. We are controlled by the love of Christ. That's why 2 Corinthians says this, chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, for the love of Christ controls us. We are controlled by the love of Christ, remembering this, that he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live, those who are made alive in Christ, we don't live for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so as we go throughout this week, may the love of Christ so control us that we don't live for self, but we live for Jesus Christ. Let's pray.